Well, like I said, welcome to Easter Sunday, um, and I want to thank you for being with us. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about me. I am sick, so um, everyone has given me a wide berth. Uh, I've been sick for about four days. Nothing horrible. I get this every year, um, but believe me, uh, you don't want to be coughing in a supermarket, so I'm keeping my distance, but um, uh, it's just one of those things. You get a cold, and it turns into something more, and that's where I sit today. Um, I want to be, uh, first of all, I want to say thank you. We had a beautiful, I mean, a beautiful Good Friday service. And if you haven't had a chance to see that, I encourage you to go see all the different elements, all the different families that sang, all the different people that gave of their heart, all the interpretation through ASL, and all of the coordination that made that possible. Pastor Tim leading us in a devotional and just letting us know again that what happened on Friday brings us to today. And so I just want to again tell you, I'm just so proud um, of the staff. There's another truth as well. Uh, Jody and I have been um, really focusing uh, on uh, some counseling, which you guys all knew about that the elders um, encouraged us to take. And we've been doing that uh, virtually and doing that. And so we've just been wrestling through some of those things as well. And I just want to thank you for the prayer. And we're just still coming out of that. And, and, and we weren't planning to have this come right up to Easter. And so this has all been a little bit different. And yes, this whole situation uh, has made all things different, but let me just say that God is good, and um, I'm excited to be with you today um, as we go into Scripture. Um, but again, I, as a lead pastor, I can't be any more proud than uh, with the team and what they're doing and how they're reaching out, and hopefully you're feeling that. Hopefully you're feeling that through what we do in our services. Hopefully you're feeling that in, in, in even how we do this. And again, many of you will never know all the different moving pieces that have to put into place to put on a service like this, um, and um, but I just want to encourage you that you would um, know that you're loved, and again, let the church know how we um, can help you. So with that, I just want to say to you that I am excited to get into today's message. By the way, um, this message has been something that God has wrestled with me on, and so um, I want to talk to you about that. Today we're talking about this idea of the torn veil. So I want to get into that, and then I'm going to explain some things to you. So to start our time off, we're in Matthew chapter 27, uh, verses 50 through 51. And it says this, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He dies. He dies. And when that happened, it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split when Jesus died the veil the curtain was torn in two the reason why I'm focusing on this this Easter is this is that moment that moment it means that everything would never be the same. Let's talk about this curtain. In Exodus 26, verses 31 through 33, we read this. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twi uh, twine linen, and that shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of a of acacia overlaid with gold with hooks of gold and four bases of silver and you shall hang it hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil 
And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. The veil shall separate for you. Now, I want you to look at that word separate, or how we would say it, separate. The reality is we have a God that wants to be in communion with us. He was with, in communion with Adam and Eve. Our sin brought this where he cannot be, and then he comes into a place and gives him a place where he can be in our midst, but there is a veil that is around him. Once a year, after all of these ceremonies and cleansings and washing, one high priest could go in once a year. But that was it. This veil is interesting. But to tell you about that, I want to tell you a story. I was probably uh, nine years old or so when I was at my grandmother's house. And, and I don't know if this was a family friend. I don't know if he was related. I don't know. I just know that we were sitting out in my grandma's front lawn and talking. And as I was talking with him, I noticed that he had uh, lost these two fingers. And as a kid, I was young, and, and I asked, hey, what happened to your fingers? And he was explaining how he had worked for a, um, an industry that, that made um, cloth and, and actually made um, things that were, that were woven together, and that in this, the machine broke, and he reached in, and, and, and literally the power of the cloth literally just took his fingers off. Of course, that's a horrific story, and I'm just like, wow, I can't believe that. And he made a comment to me that was just interesting at the time. He says, you do not understand how, how strong cloth is when it's woven together. You don't realize how powerful it is. He goes, I believe that you're going to see that we're going to start using cloth to even tie down roads because some of this cloth can even be stronger than chains. And I went, no way. No way you're going to do that. You don't, cloth, I, I mean, I have a t-shirt. He goes, no, no, you don't understand. When it's woven together, it's so strong. I grew up, and sure enough, here comes straps, semis with these cloth bands that are in place of chains and are as strong as, or in some ways, even stronger than chains because when a chain, one weak link can break all of it, and yet you have this cloth that is done. And so we literally have thousands and thousands of pounds, tons and tons being strapped down by cloth. I have them on my truck uh, that I had. I, I would take that and I would cinch down. When we go to Mexico, we would tie down our loads with these cinch straps that were just cloth. So let me tell you about this cloth. In the description of what they've understood, this cloth that was hung was, again, as we heard, it was beautiful and it was embroidered and it was all these things. But they said that it was the thickness of a human hand. Think about that. The thickness of the cloth. Think about that. That's a lot. Even the straps that I tie down with are not even halfway that thick. And yet, at the death of Jesus, it rips. Now, the priests at that time would have had an incredibly hard situation. By the way, very consequential that at the death of this one who claimed to be the Lord, that this veil would be torn. But the earthquake probably was their justification. Well, the earthquake, it was just so strong. The earthquake is what caused the tear. From my understanding, I'm telling you, the buckles and the clasp and everything else would all have broken before this thing would have torn. So why am I telling you that? Because it wasn't an earthquake that tore that veil. That was a God who said, this no longer is needed. Because my son has accomplished his task. My son 
has made the way for there no longer to be a need for this. I'm sure that after in the days following this that the priests got together and got people and they put it all back together or sewed it back together or did whatever they had to do, but they tried to reestablish this, but it was already done. It was already done. See, we have Jesus that has come not just to die, but raise, and we're going to get there, but listen, at his death, there was no longer a need for the separation because all the things that kept us separated from God, Christ Jesus was taking care of all those things on the cross. So, I'm trying to come to this thing and realize that he did something so powerful and so significant. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23, the Hebrews writer writes this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we don't have to go through a veil anymore. That's not needed. No, we go through the blood of Jesus, almost a curtain of blood. We can go into the presence of God. I can walk into the holy of holies. I can be in that place and not be fearful of death and not be fearful of what can happen because of what Jesus did on that cross. See, that veil is no longer needed because his blood made it possible for me to enter in. By the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. It is through him. The only way that I now have access into that. There is no physical hands thickness veil that is separating me from God. His blood allowed it to take that place. By the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And so we come to Easter morning and realize that all things have changed. Not just that he's died, but there's new access to this God because of what he has done on the cross. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. Folks, we get to draw near. The tabernacle, this holy of holies, you need to draw near. There were all these, these, these porches and porticos and, and all these places where you weren't able to go. No, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Folks, I can come with no doubts because I am covered because of what Christ did. And with our hearts clean, uh, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Is faithful. So this week I've been wrestling with this idea of um, the veil and what that would look like. That there is no longer this veil that is there. There's no longer this uh, part that is um, with that. I, I was just trying to hear God, like, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to experience? So let me just be honest with you. We get to be in a place of full acceptance. I don't think we live in it. 
We don't believe all the things that have allowed us to come into this place and have this sense of, of trust in God. But we should. See, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is enabled to sympathize with our weakness. See, he's been with us. He was one of us. He walked. He had people do things to him, hurt him, ignore him. Yes, beat him, crucify him. But one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And so I just want you to know that we have one, this high priest that goes, look, I've been there and I get you and I cry for you and I hurt for you and that's why I did it. That's why I did it. So what did he do? He stepped into our pain. Um, as a part of Jody and I's counseling, um, our counselor was a friend of the person who wrote the book, The Shack. And he texted us and said, hey, you guys are really hurting in some areas. Would it be okay if I let him come into our virtual call and have you guys talk to him? We said, absolutely. And he shared something in that that has really honestly even been transformative for me. And I think God gave it to me in a timely place Matthew 27 46 and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying Eli Eli lema sabathia I hope I'm sure I got that completely wrong it's what I do but it means my God my God why have you forsaken me I preached this before many Easter's this is a common passage to preach And again, I I can see this moment where Jesus realizes that because of my sin and because of your sin and because of all the things that we've done, that God is letting him have all of that. And he's going to take all of that to the grave and he's going to take it as far as the east and the west. But God didn't stop my sin from being on his son. And so then Jesus would have said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he shared something uh, Paul Young did that caught me off guard. Let me take you on a side trip real quick. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, every time Satan would say something to them, say something to him, he responded with, it is written. Let me just say this to you. It's exactly what Jesus does here. You see, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not the only time we find this phrase in the Bible. But before we get to that, I want you to see this. He asked the question, why? Have you, God, forsaken me? And we can get to that space of asking that question, why, God, have you, the one who's supposed to love me and is good, and why does it feel like you've forsaken me? And Jesus, I think in a couple of ways, is going to do something that I'm going to explain, but is also sitting in that place of that hurt, of so much sin and so much brokenness, and that sense of separation. And I think you and I feel it. 
And so he asked the question, why have you forsaken me? But like I told you, it's not the first time we find this. So I've been struggling with how to explain this to you. What Jesus says is found in the very first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the, wor- from the words of my groaning. So let me explain this to you. This was the insight that God gave me this week. I think that Jesus says the first line of a psalm knowing how it ends. We're going to get there, and please don't read ahead. But he starts the words, and just in the same way, if, 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 if someone sings to you maybe the first word, words of a song, you know how the whole song goes, and it gives you a feeling. You don't need the whole song. You just need the first few words. Or if I was to say four score and seven years ago, you know what that whole thing is and how it's connected to Abraham Lincoln and all that stuff. It's just like just those little words fill in the rest of it. And I'm really trying to make this clear. Those little beginnings fill in the rest of this. It is my belief that Jesus says these words on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he knows how the rest of the psalm goes. He knows what the rest of the psalm says. And if we would know how the rest of the psalm goes and ends, I think we're going to see this moment on the cross differently. So let's do that. We're going to jump down to verse 11. In your U version, I've given you the entire psalm, but for time, I'm going to jump down to verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near me, and there is none to help. Could Jesus be feeling those emotions on the cross? Be not far from me, for trouble is near me, and there is none to help. I believe the answer is yes. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. Jesus is watching him. Scripture says that the spirits are just going around. They're celebrating his death. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. See, the thing is, is this is a writing of David saying that, that God, come and save me. And Jesus is feeling the exact same things. But listen to me, he knows how it ends. That God is going to let this come to pass. But that's not how this psalm ends. 
See, again, I believe that Jesus says the first words of Psalm 22 and then knows how it ends. And in that, by the way, we get in Psalm 22 a description of his crucifixion. Yes, they cast lots for his clothes. Yes, it was like he could count all of the bones. He could feel all of his joints. All of that took place. It's prophecy, and it's a statement, and it's a truth, but we don't get to the end until we get to the end of the psalm. We're, we're getting there. Verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. See, this is it. Jesus knows that God heard his cry. Jesus knows that what he was doing was a beautiful experience. And then you need to know that Jesus knows how this psalm ends. And he knows that God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. God is not looking at your affliction and going, I can't touch you, you're too dirty, I can't do this. No, this is why he sent his son. That his son would pay for the affliction. His son would take care of these things. For he has not despised or poured the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Our God hears us in our cry. From you comes praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. May your hearts live forever. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. See, this is where this psalm is going. He starts off with, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it's going to a place that says, because of what he does on the cross, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. And those who seek him shall praise the Lord. And may your hearts live forever. And all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Because of what Jesus did, it wasn't just the Jews, but all of the families of the nations get to come to the throne and get to come to Jesus. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations. Verse 29, and all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. But we get to verse 30. We're almost there, folks. I believe with all of my heart that Jesus started, my God, my God, why have you not, why have you forsaken me? Because verses 30 and 31 were in his mind. Prosperity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. And here we go. 
He has done it. Let me let that sit with you. Jesus begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, knowing that it ends with it? He has done it. He has come. He has given us hope. He's given us salvation. And he's given us life. And when he said those words, and he died, and the veil was torn, He did it. Jesus begins the beginning of chapter 22 to the end of chapter 22 of the book of Psalms, knowing that it starts with this phrase, but ends with, he has done it. John 19.30 tells it this way. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You see, he did it. He's done it. He's given us hope. He came to do exactly what was said of him. John saw him right before his baptism, said, Look, there's the Lamb of God, meaning there's the sacrifice. He was born and given to Mary and Joseph, but it was told at his time, at literally eight days old, in that very temple, um, he's here. And he's going to do it. He had a goal and a purpose, and it wasn't to just die. It was that that veil would be torn, and that he would raise again, and that we would have hope for life. Let's go back to Matthew 27, 50 and 51. And Jesus cried out again, and with a loud voice he yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom, earth shook and the rocks were split. Why? Because he had done it. Because he has done it. We sit today because he has done it. He came did he wrestle at the garden? Yes, may this cup pass from me, but he was faithful. He has done it. And he rose. And he said, I have victory over all of this. I have power over all of this. This does not have power over me. And folks, whatever you're dealing with and whatever you're struggling with, it does not have power over him either. It may be having power over you right now, but it does not have power over him. Can you give that to him? 
Can you, can you walk into that spot and say, here it is? Because he's done it. He did exactly what was asked of him, exactly what the Father wanted. He has done it. And so I just want to encourage you that we have a God that says, I'm going to send my son. And the son said, Dad, I did the job. In Romans 8, 34. The question is, who is to condemn? Who can come and, and, and tell you that you're wrong? Who can come and bring all this evidence? And he says this, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who was at the right hand of God and who indeed is in, in, interceding for us. This is one of my personal stronghold passages. The one who has the right to throw the rock at my head doesn't. He sits at the Father and intercedes for me. The one who could say Jeff is the one who's guilty and he's the one who's done all these things. He goes, nope, I paid for that. I did it. He sits at the right hand and intercedes for me. The one who I've probably done so much damage to and hurt so desperately goes, I still love you. And it's for you that I did it. And I'm going to sit at my Father's right side and every day I'm going to intercede for you. Every day I'm going to make a case for you. Every day I am going to be your champion. Every day. Every day. Until I come home to take you, until I come back to take you home. So the veil was torn. But there's still a barrier. So let me explain this. Because of our sin, God put a barrier up because he could not in his holiness be in our presence. And so he made it possible for us to be in our midst. And again, once a year, a high priest could come into that place. But Jesus takes that barrier away. I want to share something with you. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. See, the only barrier left is the door of your heart. See, he's taking the other barrier away. The, the, the veil is gone. He's done his part. He's here. And he even says, I'm going to come all the way up to your door and I'm going to knock. He's not standing out going, hey, I'm out here, come find me. He isn't saying, hey, I'm going I'm to be over here if you do all these religious things. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm going to come right up to the door of your heart, and I'm going to knock. And I don't think it's a soft knock either. I think it's a pounding, and he says, look, if you'll open up your door, I'm not going to come in and start trying to find all your sin and looking underneath your cushions and checking out. No, I'm going to come in, and we're just going to have a meal. And we're going to just exchange. This Easter, hear me say, he already took away the barrier and the only one that is keeping the barrier up for so many of you hearing me is you. Not him. He's already done it.
took it away. But have you opened the door? Have you let him come in and sit at your table? Have you let him minister to your heart? See, this is the thing about Easter. He came, he died, and he rose, and he took away the barriers, and he gave you grace, and he's given you his word, and the Holy Spirit wants to indwell your heart. But he stands and he knocks because you're the last barrier. That door to your heart is the last thing. And he's not coming in to ruin your life. He's coming in to sit with you. He's coming in to be with you. And to guide you and to comfort you and to encourage you. See, there's those watching from around um, this area. May I plead with you. That if you're in a place that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Would you please run all the way to the end of that chapter and say in your head, he's done it. He paid for it. And he stands at my heart and he just wants in. He is alive. He is living and advocating on your behalf. The veil is torn. Our desire is to have communion 
And hopefully you have uh, been able to get the elements uh, ready for your family. Again, the elements are not as essential as your heart being in that place with him. And what we really want to encourage you with is that um, this time of communion is him saying, this is everything I've done for you. I gave my body, I gave my blood, I gave them to you, and we get to take that meal and say, yes, he did come, yes, he did die, yes, he did spill his blood. And because of that, I have life. So we have a video that we're going to share with you. It's about the table. And so maybe you're sitting around your living room, maybe you're at your table, maybe you're sitting in your car. I have no idea. But he says that I have created a table. And it goes right back to that passage that we were talking about where it says, I want to come in and eat with you. I want to come in and have a meal with you. So today, would you have that meal with him? And would you thank him as you watch this video and you have this time of communion?